This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast. We hope that you're enjoying the conversations we've been having with these leading people of faith as they work their ministry into everyday life. This morning, I'm delighted to be able to welcome Sally Irwin. Sally is a, a, a young woman who has entered the heady world of business, but with a particular bent. In 2014, Sally commenced or started the Freedom Hub, a company that was dedicated to um, ethics and the eradication of modern slavery. Things happened fairly quickly for that business. And in 2017, uh, Sally was nominated as one of the top 50 business leaders. And in 2019, the Freedom Hub won the Sydney Region New South Wales Business Chambers Award for Social Enterprise. Sally, the particular area that you have uh, dedicated or, or had the focus of your business is in the area of, of uh, ending modern slavery. Can I ask for a, a young a young lady entering business, what was it that attracted you to that particular cause? First of all, I have to say, I love the fact you're calling me a young lady. <laughs> I appreciate that very much. <laughs> I don't feel that young right now. Um, so what made me pick that cause is the fact that I had spent some time in Europe and I had been working for four years um, as a volunteer on the front line in a little like needle exchange where girls had been sex trafficked out of Eastern Europe into Berlin in Germany, and um, and it was a pretty confronting, life-changing, scary, um, horrible situation that I spent four years really feeling like I had no impact or very little impact, felt hopeless, felt um, there's got to be something I can do to change this. And... Um, I honestly thought that for the rest of my life, that's what I would be doing, no more corporate world or business world for me. And um, and I was all set for that um, because I just couldn't feel being an Australian with any female in the world not being able to have freedom and choice mm. and being stuck in circumstances mm. so badly. So it was a, so it was a first, hand, sorry, sorry, it was a first hand experience of, of witnessing yeah. the, the, devastation yeah. of, of lives that, uh, that yeah. this, this um, issue brought to you. But ma- many people would, would uh, have that encounter and not be propelled to do anything. What, what was the drive for uh, you say, I've, I've got to do something? <laughs> well, the drive for me was finding out it was happening in Australia, really. Really. But even over the – sorry, the, the initial drive was because um, – that was a lot of reasons, actually. It was a combination of a number of things. First of all, we were diplomats, so we were living in a very wealthy um, off situation. Um, we were doing cocktail parties every night, and I was, as a Christian from Australia, I was like, hang on, God, I'm not here for four years to, to drink cocktails and talk about Botox and ball gowns every day. There's got to be a reason I'm here. So that was me looking for something to do. Um, then I chose the issue of human trafficking slavery because I'd heard about that 
from my daughter who is in Christian school, current Christian school here in Australia, and she had been confronted by slavery by a World Vision presentation at her school before mm-hmm. we left. So she was like, did you know slavery is happening? And, was, and, um, and really alerted to me, to me um, as an issue. Um, and then suddenly I knew that we were on the border of, of, of um, East Berlin's very Eastern European. So mm-hmm. I knew that we were we were in a, an area that had poverty and was a high-risk area. So I really did go looking specifically for something that would help women. And I also, being a diplomat's wife, I was all day shopping with women of all kinds of faiths and all kinds of nationalities. Mm. And I thought there's got to be something that would that I could rally them to feel that they could be giving money towards. Yes. And then finally, my own sister here back here in Australia had contracted um, leukemia and potentially was dying. She, she survived. I've got to tell you that. Sometimes I get into this story and forget to mention that. Um, but the fact that I was confronted with with, um, with that as well, mm. I realised that I, I just couldn't do nothing while mm. I was in Europe for four years. When I, people in Australia, the GSC had happened, people were losing jobs, my sister was sick. I just knew I had to do something of a mm. cause. So I literally went looking for a cause and chose modern slavery for the reason I've said, really, mm. women could be, women could help women. I could, um, I could really... Make, I thought I could make a big difference. Mm. I couldn't because I was a domestic wife and as a foreigner in another country, you can't lobby with, 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 com- with, country, with ambassadors from countries that were causing the problem or, you know, the, the sending countries sitting at my dinner table. I couldn't really offend them. Yes. And, and, and so I was bound in many, many ways to not be able to do as much as I would have liked to have. But yeah. when I came back to Australia and found out slavery was happening here, I realised, okay, it's game on now. It's my language. I can lobby. I can make a difference. And why should this be happening in Australia? Why? I mean, we've got border control. We're an island. We don't have the extreme poverty that we saw in Eastern Europe. We don't have the organised gangs and crimes that we see in Eastern Europe and all of these countries that are controlling modern-day slavery. So I just thought this should not be happening in the lucky country, the fair go the country that I grew up in, this is mm. ridiculous. Now I can actually do something. Mm. So there's so, a lot of drivers, and that was a, that's a nutshell of a, like a four-year journey I've yeah. just given you. Yeah, so that, that all led to the commencement of the Freedom Hub as, as a business yeah. enterprise. Yeah. Sally, yes, what? Yes, well, it, led to, it started as a charity. It started as me running a survivor school for survivors of slavery right. in our country to try and help them get back on their feet. Right. So the school it came first. It was later that I thought of a business to fund it. Yeah, that's good. I think some of us will will know from a distance that that this uh, terrible, despicable practice of of uh, human trafficking and modern slavery happens in other parts of the world, and we might have views of dark, dingy uh, um, buildings and set, set parts mm. of cities where where the, the the trade is practiced. What does it look like in Australia? Right. Well, in Australia, it is um, it's well hidden. That's the first problem that we have. A lot of it's in domestic labour, so it's hidden in au pairs or nannies. Um, it's hidden in the kitchens of restaurants, cleaners at night in high-rise buildings, backpackers or people on farms harvesting fruit, mining, building. It's, it's a very hidden crime. Mm. It's in every single industry. 
um, but forced labour is one of our biggest areas and also forced marriage mm. um, is also another area where young girls have grown up in Australia who are being forced into a marriage to suit their grandparents' culture. Mm. Um, so those are our biggest. Sex trafficking is still very real, what I experienced in uh, Germany. However, it's probably as low as 35 40% here. Mm. Um, and really it's very hard to to know even that because it's so well hidden statistics are not really forthcoming. People are not putting their hands up. A lot of people don't even know they're in slavery. They've come over here or they've ended up in a country and, and ended up tricked and lied to and they think, well, this is what it's like back home. Mm. Why, would, why would I think it's any different here? Mm. Uh, they don't have any English skills, so they don't, they're just lied to by the person that's controlling them. Mm. So it's um, it's difficult to, to really paint the picture, but it's, the official figure is 15,000 people in Australia. I would suggest that's grossly underestimated. I think there's a lot more than that. Sally, you, you mentioned that sometimes the people suffering from this, this situation don't realise, they wouldn't put a label on it the way we do. Yeah. Do, you, is, do you think there is, like does the, the definitions of what is right, what is ethical, what is fair, is that something that is justifiably different in different parts of the world or for different people? How do you... Yes, Australia is the first country in the world to define modern-day slavery in a um, recent uh, Modern Slavery Act that came out at the end of 2018. So we've actually defined exactly what it means. It is a very big and long um, paper, <laughs> which I am not a lawyer and I'm not even going to try and attempt to define it legally. Sally's definition of slavery versus exploitation is that exploitation is I've accepted $5 an hour from you and I can walk out the door and um, and get on with my life if I'm not happy with that. Someone in slavery has lost um, their freedom. Mm. They usually cannot leave their situation without the fear or threat of death for themselves mm. or for someone in their family. They um, And it may just be a perceived, it may not be a real threat, it may be perceived, they think that this is going to happen and it's believable. Mm. I, even know an, I even know of an Australian survivor as well hasn't come from another country. She, her, her controller just had to show a photo of her grandma outside her, grandma, outside her house. And this young girl was fearful and believed that this person, without even saying a word, because he knew where her grandma lived, she was never going to sort of um, not do whatever he said. And that was a young girl who was tricked into forced um, ex-slavery up in Queensland. Um, so for a foreigner or someone who's a migrant who's come here to work or to improve their skills at university or for whatever reason they've come here for, they've all come here legally. Mm. Um, they have no idea that we have human rights, that we have Fair Work Australia, that we have award wages. Mm. They don't know these things and they're very easily convinced and exploited by people from often from their own culture or from a, a similar culture whereby there's no human rights in that country. And so they believe what they're told mm. and they end up in a very vulnerable situation. So the the issue of, of uh, this horrendous um, scenarios that you're mapping and the realisation that some of the life that we enjoy in Australia, the ready availability of our fruit in our supermarkets may mm. have, may be the result of some yep. some people experiencing terrible conditions, uh, unethical conditions. 
what's the it, what's your perception about the change in people's awareness or their commitment or their interest in in the backstory of the life that they are enjoying and their responsibility for what that backstory means? Is has that changed over recent years? So yes, I think the modern slavery act is a great first step in that. I mean, a lot of people are critical of it because it really is talking about supply chains overseas. But the fact that it's got a conversation happening and it's forcing businesses to look at their supply chains, yes, the big businesses that must comply are large companies and they are are to audit the the risk in their supply chains overseas. But even within Australia, if they're a large company, they must audit all their supply chains. Mm. So what it's doing is it means that all the smaller businesses that supply those large businesses must start thinking about their supply chain. Mm. But even if you stick to just the big companies, not only do they have to audit their supply chain, but they're also responsible for making sure that's rolled out through their company. Mm. So therefore, everybody in their company and the hundreds and thousands of people they employ are hearing that modern slavery exists. Mm. And therefore, it's raising the issue of that it's a conversation that's being had that it even happens in Australia. So it's really, really helping. Like, for example, last year I managed to train over 400 businesses in modern-day slavery, and I don't know that I would have had that opportunity if there wasn't a, a, an act coming out, mm. it sort of opens the door for most of us in this area to be able to go into business and say, what are you doing to make sure the girl on the reception that's buying the block of chocolate for someone who's leaving? What are mm. you doing to make sure she's thinking about whether that chocolate's ethical or mm. not, whether it's been sourced correctly or not? So it's actually opened up the conversation. It's given the media something to report on and, um, and they're doing a lot of reporting. I just think that's going to really change the awareness level. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm one of the possible follow-ons from that, um, Sally, which I, I'd be interested to ask your thoughts on, is Modern Slavery Act comes in, it's applicable to big business, they now need to take responsibility for checking supply chains and sourcing product. Does, does that mean that the everyday Joe and Jill don't have to worry about it any longer? Is it just, well, we can leave it to the big companies to get sorted and... No. No, I think the big companies um, are going to really change the way Australia Australian businesses operate and the, the way yeah, why we trade in, um, overseas and here. But the, it's still very much up to the um, everyday household person to identify people who have been victims in their neighbourhood. Mm. Because most there is no task force, no one running out reading, reading houses and um, and, and looking for cleaners or repairs or whatever. A lot of people are identified because a neighbour or somebody has said, hey, look, you know, my neighbours have had a cleaner there for the last two years and I've never seen that person outside. I've mm. We've definitely got survivors of slavery that have been identified that way. Or yeah. that, that cleaner or that um, domestic helper has actually been outside and managed to a note or say something to someone. Mm. It takes a brave Australian who wants to see the right thing done, who asks the questions, that makes the call to the federal police. Um, they're the people that have really helped a lot of our survivors be identified, particularly in Boston. Mm. So it's it's interesting because you're you're uh, while you're dealing it at a systemic level with with the structures and the institutions, uh, you're also recognising the importance of the personal, the the individual mm. taking notice, taking care. Yeah, uh, yeah. Of what's going so on even, around them. Even in car washes, there are and men in car washes. There are girls in, in um, um, mouth salons and in massage parlours. 
you know, if, if someone doesn't actually go, this person is not looking happy about what. We've even had sex trafficking. We've even had men who have come out of the wealthy and said that girl doesn't want to be doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it's, it's the Australian going, this isn't right. This person's not happy in this job. They mm-hmm. look like they're in trouble. And they've actually highlighted that. It's actually really helped the federal police. They then go in and start to investigate and mm-hmm. look and watch. But they, yeah. So it is definitely the average person as well. That's fantastic. And you've probably seen the posters at the airport for small um, forced marriage as well. Yeah. There's a lot of young girls out there that have no idea what to do. Yeah. They're, they're in a situation they've been through an Australian school and they've get, you know, they've reached the age of 15, 16. They're told they're not going to go to uni like their friends. They're going to have to be a wife for the rest of their life. Yeah. And who do they tell? They don't want to put their parents on the stand. They're not going to go to the police. Who do they talk to? So yeah. it's, the, it's their friends and their neighbours and their schoolmates. Or, you know, those are the people that need to sort of go, this person's looking more and more depressed and they're yeah. talking about an overseas trip soon. I'm a bit suspicious what's going on. So that, that really does help. There, there's a bit of a tendency in the, the Western culture that Australia is part of to mind your own business, not to cause a fuss, just to keep those sorts of things to yourself is is that a, a changed norm that we we need to uh, encourage people to get beyond sally do you think probably i think when it comes to people that are in persecution or there's a suspicion of it yeah yeah mm. yeah sally you, you mentioned that um you grew up or your, your daughter was uh, in a christian school and that was yeah. the first point in, in which she became aware that this was a, a field of, of life. Can I ask yep. you what role has your personal Christian beliefs had in in this becoming important for you? Um, yeah, I would say uh, because I did grow up in a um, a church going family doesn't mean we were actually active Christians, <laughs> but um, I was dragged to church every Sunday as a kid. Um, I think. I mean, I'm, I know biblically that the seed is that was planted. Um, I certainly rebelled against that for many years. I didn't actually become a Christian until I was in my 30s. But even when I look back through my later teenagers and my career days, I can see that I was always naturally wanting to help people who seemed to be either bullied or mm. persecuted. You know, I even had a, um, a Bernardo's child. Um, in my 20s, mm. um, you know, I, I've, I've just always had that um, that sort of rescue capacity within me, I suppose. And it's, of course, I even hate the word rescue because you're not really rescuing anybody. People have to choose to rescue. Um, it's more just a helping hand. So it's always been within me. Mm. Um, I've just never really understood why. And so I guess I became a Christian. And as I said, being overseas and being completely out of the Christian world and forced into this incredibly, just a world I could never ever thought I'd be in, of people that just lived for themselves, it really highlighted that in me. It mm. really made me go, okay, mm. God, there's got to be purpose to this. Mm. You wouldn't send me overseas and rescue us from a GSC and put me in this place if there wasn't some purpose. Mm. And so I did really actively go looking for that purpose. So I'd say, yeah, my Christian faith led me to what I'm doing. Mm, That's good. I've deliberately not set up a Christian organisation. I've Mm. deliberately set up a business as a business. 
because I really want everybody to be able to do something about this crime. I think it's very disabling to read or to learn about such a horrible crime as this. It's not just this crime, anything. You feel disabled when you see what's going on in Africa and, or you see what's going on in some countries and it's that disability that I think desensitises people. Yeah. yeah so so like, I really deter- Yeah. I was going to say, you, 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 must, you were hearing your conversation, you were a Christian when you went across as a diplomat to Europe. Yes. And it was part of the contrast of what, what I'm hearing is it was a part of the contrast of the life that, that was uh, part of that role and your inner yeah. life of, of faith and spirituality yeah. that uh, was in contrast. Can I ask you, how did you become a Christian? How did you, how did you discover that deeper life of faith and spirituality <laughs> within you? Well, interestingly, my daughter, before she was born, actually sort of pretty much lived, or as she was born, then we did the Lord. Really? I was, um, she was six weeks early, and um, it's a quite a, a long story, but yeah, I, I had been a high-powered, very selfish, just like all those diplomatic women, I had been a very high-powered, um, money-driven, career-driven executive for Myers Australia. I was, um, anyway, uh, yeah, uh, and I was pregnant and my daughter came six weeks early. And probably it was that, it really was that that led me to the Lord because I hadn't prayed for many years. I was self-sufficient. I had, I could do and control anything that was going on in my life. And this was out of my control. I was looking at this baby and um, she was blue and, and I didn't think she'd live. Really? And I sat there going, this isn't how the Lord's meant to be. And yes. Yeah, I can look back and see I was driven by the Holy Spirit. I didn't even know who the Holy Spirit was there. Yes. I just know, I can now look back and see that I was called to prayer. And I just prayed out to God, where are you? And, and really sensed, well, where, where have you been? <laughs> um, I'm here, sort of thing. And um, in in a very, um, because my, I didn't know God, as I didn't know Christ as a, as a as a friend or I just knew God from my Sunday school days, I didn't know him personally. So mm. I found it, I, I just sat there negotiating really. <laughs> I'll go to church forever. I'll, 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 I'll be in ministry forever. I'll be a nun if you want me to be. It was like this prayer of just save my baby. I had, um, oh, and what I, what I left out is just before that prayer, I had thought, I know if I touch her and hold her and she knows I'm here, she'll be okay. Mm. And I opened up the community crib and touched her and all these alarms went off. The heart rate was crazy. <laughs> Nurses and doctors came from everywhere and told me I wasn't going to touch her. And that's when I went, this isn't right. I should be able to touch my baby. God, where are you? Why aren't mm. you here? And, mm. and so the prayer happened. As soon as I said that prayer, even though it was all wrong, <laughs> with regards to me wanting to be a nun or do whatever, it was definitely a prayer of I will give up my life to her, mm. and it was genuine in my heart, and um, and I had the biggest sense of peace. Mm. And I, I, within a minute, I opened up that door and put my hand in and touched her again, um, and not a single alarm went off. So I witnessed my own miracle. That's amazing. And I didn't really believe in yeah. I didn't believe in miracles, of course, but I sat there and I literally felt. I can now I say what it was. I felt like it was the Holy Spirit passing mm. through me into her. I just felt wow. this life go into her. I didn't have words for that. I certainly didn't tell my husband or anybody because I thought they'd lock me up as a crazy. 
But I, at the time, I just knew that it was God. I just wow. knew that she had been saved by him. So I felt very obliged then and had to go to church. Yeah. <laughs> that was the beginning of my Christian faith. Because then I found the Bible and realized all those Bible stories that I've learned from this school were real. Um, and and so it went went from there, really. Um, yeah, it was, it was my daughter. So she's um, been quite an impact on my life. <laughs> Indeed. It seems as though these confronting experiences uh, are something that, that God, whether you're conscious of it or not, introduces at the key moments when when he's yeah. revealing his purpose for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so you have yeah. this encounter. There's there's no there's no experienced Christian leading you into a, the sinner's prayer or nope. point of repentance. Nope. It was a a one on one encounter. Yep, hundred percent. Well that yeah. that must um I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, it must give you a tremendous sense of confidence in the reality of what what your faith is when it's it's so undeniably direct between you and God? Yeah, well, yeah, it, it really was. Of course, it made me just sort of try to, um, I had to understand what I just happened to be. And, and so I was also, once again, pursuing, trying to find that out and just threw myself in the studies and, and reading the Bible and learning the Bible and doing theology degree. And I just threw myself at knowing everything I could. And of mm. course, every single, every, I did everything wrong in the way regards to every friend had to be converted on the spot. I lost a lot of friends <laughs> because I was so busy trying to help everybody understand there's this, this God out there that can change their life. And um, yeah, it was, it was a very interesting time. My husband was an atheist. He was like, absolutely, you've gone mad. And um, it took a lot of um, working to get him and a lot of prayer to get him across the line, but fortunately he followed fairly quickly himself. That's fantastic. Um, he was definitely led through an amazing Christian man who um, who had been an, an um, atheist himself and and, um, and had the same sort of education. It was just a perfect person to lead him um, through through what was going on. I was all about I was all about the faith, but yeah, yeah, he was more yeah. about the Bible. Is it real? How do we yeah. know it's real? What's the evidence? Work it through. And all yeah. the, yeah, he had to work it through. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a, a high-powered executive in, in a, a very significant company in Australia. You have this this encounter and become a person of faith. What change did it bring in the next weeks, months, years to, to how you were going about life? Um, well, everything changed because <laughs> probably so my husband's in the defence force. So we got posted to the UK um, within about, three or four years um, of that. And it was in the UK that we went to a Church of England church that was charismatic. And it was a church that was um, running the Alpha course. Right. And and so we um, threw ourselves into that because we wanted to be evangelists, really. We wanted everybody to know. So, um, and it was really there that I discovered the Holy Spirit, I suppose, probably what I'm trying to say. I discovered mm. that there was that all I've been through and these things are possible, that God does heal today, that mm. God does do miracles today, that you can hear his voice today. So that was um, that was the beginning of our Alpha journey. Came back to Australia and launched Youth Alpha here in Australia and spent 15 years really in, in the, um, doing ministry with youth mm. around Australia. So, um, yeah, I was a youth pastor and doing youth work. And, and it was- So it changed me completely. I never went back to a career. That's that's the the, the point at which you 
were captured by something else, something bigger than business, something yeah. more than profit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and, and well, yet you know, in, the, in my mind I'd also promised, I guess, promised God that I would never work for money again. Money was my my idol. Mm. You know, I was before, when I was admired, it was whatever it took, you know, it's been the devil always cried. You've got a bit of an idea about what life was like mm. <laughs> in the buying office of Myers. It was pretty full on. It was all about running and career. And and, um, and so I knew that, yeah, I decided I was never going to work for money again. I sort of resolved that because it was my stronghold. It was my idol. It was, it, yeah, so I never have. I've never drawn a wage to this day. So I just, Make sure I, yeah, I, I, I stuck to that really. Mm. Even though I went into that promise with the wrong reasons, I know that they were the right reasons. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And, and yet, Sally, in in the the reality of that, the, the truth of your commitment not to let business become the dominating thing in your life, you have chosen to use business. Yes, yes. The other way. So I really wanted to, I guess one of the things you can take, you can't take the retail out of the girl. I spent the rest of my life traveling the world following my husband around. <laughs> but wherever I went, I was always watching retail. I was always looking and going, how are they doing it with my business? I do this. But, you know, so I've, I've studied it and longed for it. But I've always longed for being, being able to do a business for good mm. because the business world in the 80s was pretty you know, late 80s, 90s, was pretty corrupt. Um, it wasn't transparent and there was a lot of lying and a lot of greed and it was all about profit, not people. So I've always had that longing as well, which of course now I can look back on life and go, well, of course, God gives you the desires of your heart, so that's why that longing was there. Mm. But I always thought, wouldn't it be great if you could run a business and use the money for good? Mm. So it was really probably six months into the Freedom Hub Survivor School that I'm like, I can't keep fundraising as a charity. It's crazy. It's hard, hard work. But I also really believe that the next generation don't want to give like our generation did. Yes. Um, they want to be part of the change. They yes. want to do things to change the world. So going around the charity model was never really something that I wanted to continue doing. So setting up a, a pick hospitality, even though I had no experience in it, thinking it would be easy. And of course, it's harder than the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's got very low margins and it's really tricky. But um, and people honestly think one cup of coffee is changing the world. But I actually would rather that. I'd rather have a person in my coffee shop with the right intentions to have a cup of coffee, believing that they're doing good because they are doing good, but learning and hearing about mm. this issue of modern day slavery and aligning with our cause. So, um, so that was the beginning of the Freedom Hub Cafe. And the cafe in Sydney is a big warehouse. Mm. And um, thankfully, it's bigger than I could have seen. It's turned into a, an event venue for weddings and the mixes and corporate, corporate. Yeah, so that's really where the money comes, not from the cup of coffee. But yeah. I still love that people can come and have a coffee. Yeah. Our coffee rehabilitates child soldiers, rescues and rehabilitates child soldiers. And then when we met, when we serve it, all the profits are provided here. That's awesome. So it's, the coffee has a story in itself. So that's great. But yeah, the weddings and events is the big thing. Yeah, that's good. And and your um, commitment to this has moved into helping other businesses adopt or learn yes. about ethical practice. Yes. Yes. I absolutely. Yeah, so when I started, I had three main points. First of all, it's to end slavery in Australia. Second is to help victims of slavery recover. 
And the third was to partner in the fight to end global slavery because obviously I had been part of that overseas. I never foresaw the Modern Slavery Act. Mm. I really saw that partnership being more being about me being on round tables and lobbying mm. the government, being part of the change in our country and, and, and what influence that would have overseas. So when the modern slavery, when, when that started to look more like something, I was obviously part of um, helping with the lobbying of that and mm. very active with that and still am. I'm still getting invited in by the government to talk about how to roll it out and stuff with the consultations. And, um, and I'm on a number of, of boards that help these businesses rolling it out overseas. But the thing is, it, I never saw that. And mm. so that's just been, it's, it's, it's my estimate for such a time as this. I really think that now, with my experience overseas, the fact that I was even a national procurement manager, like yeah. I was in buying for Myers Australia. Yeah. So it's as if all the things of my past have all come together for this time. Yeah. I've got experience identifying and working with victims of slavery. I know where to find it. I know how to be in business. I've been making sure my own supply chains offer a small business I've been ethical for the last five years, so I've been active in that area. And so I thought, well, why not? So, yes, I've set up ethical business services and I'm doing as much consulting and helping as I can yeah. of small business and other businesses because that, 40.3 million people in Australia, in the world, sorry, in slavery minimum, 75% of them are in Asia Pacific. Yeah, right. So suddenly, as yeah. Australian businesses, we can impact global slavery dramatically. Yeah. yeah. So I'm extremely passionate about seeing our, our, our businesses think about what they're doing in Asia Pacific. Yeah, it, it, it's almost like God had a plan for you, Sally, to yeah, take you through these, these different backgrounds <laughs> and then and then bring you to a point where it all sort of falls into place and it maps out. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you very quickly, it, it appears on paper as though the, the Freedom Hub had a very, like, overnight success. Started in 2014 and then within years held up as a, a prominent success story. Do you, do you believe in overnight success? No. If you saw what was going on in our books right now, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a thing called a pandemic going on and all my funding is gone. Um, so I'm back to the charity model. I'm literally running around trying to write grants. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it takes a crisis like this to really help you First of all, the fault. It was a perfect model in a perfect world, but of course, I never. It grew. It did grow quickly. I give you that. Um, but as a result, it, there was. It was just um, a supernatural growth where I wasn't thinking about our foundation. Mm. And now, with one part of the um, funding falling over, I'm at risk of losing the whole ship, and I've got over sixty survivors in my care. So I am literally running around now trying to fund as much as I possibly can to survive. And now I've, I can see that I need to talk to lawyers and we need to restructure mm. so that we can have all different entities. So if one goes down, it doesn't actually impact the whole shift. Yeah. So that's um, the situation I'm in right now. It's really scary. And I think there's a, you know, a lot of Australians are in that boat right now. It is a scary time for all of us. Um, but I have a very, because of the miracles and the things and the drive and the purpose that I think I have on my life, I've got peace. I totally yeah. believe that, that it'll work out somehow. And it's that, it's that situation where you reach that you have to go, I cannot do any more. I yeah. can't do any more. I've applied for the grants. I've applied for what the government's offering. I've applied for everything. I've got to sit back and see what, what happens. Yeah. And that's when you, that's where I think 
Christians have a hope that yes. I don't know how people without how, I don't know how they're coping. People that have a business and they've got their houses tied up and yeah. I don't know how they're coping. There must be a lot of fear out there right now. Yeah. And um and so yeah. Yes, we did grow quickly. Um but it's not a stable success. <laughs> sure, I, I can hear. I, I think, reg, regardless of the the any period of history, I think there's a, a number of organisations feeling similar pressure as you are. But I, yeah. I also take your testimony, Sally, that uh, you've seen miracle after miracle. In fact, your your life story is itself the expression of a miracle, yeah. and your business is working miracle after miracle in the lives of those that you are helping to rescue and set free from difficulty and oppression and slavery and exploitation. And so with, with a a life that is littered with examples of miracle, I'm sure that we want to pray with you that, that uh, the freedom hub will experience its own miracle of provision and being sustained and continue to be, to be uh, successful and effective in the work that God's called you to do through that. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Um, we, we've sort of reached the, the end of our uh, time allocation, Sally. Is, is there anything that as, a, as somebody who's walked a walk and seen a lot of things and has a hope for a better future, any last words that you might want to leave with any of our listeners as they're starting to think about what life might hold for them? Oh, look. Gosh, <laughs> I think hope's the big thing. It always has been for me. There's always hope. I've always been a um, a glass half full person. Mm. Um, but when you've got the power of God behind you and you are walking in a desire that he has given you, you're not sort of trying to power on, on your own strength. Mm. I, I really believe that he will use you in your capacity and, rise, and increase your capacity more than you could ever imagine yourself. Yeah, I, I've I've never thought I could do the things that I've been doing. Um, never, you know, never had the qualifications or thought after any of this. It's just been uh, going step day by day, month by month, and and doing what I believe I'm called to do. Mm. And as a result, the um, as you called it, overnight success mm-hmm. has happened. But it has been, you know, many, many, many years of obedience mm. and learning and never giving up hope. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Sally Erlen, thank you so much for all that you were doing for, for the people that, uh, that need the help that your company, your organisation is giving. Thank you for the inspiration you. that you are providing to, to the rest of us about the difference that we can make together and for speaking to us about the, the hope that we have together in the future. No problem. Thank you for having me. It was great. God bless you. 